You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, NSLT listeners. This week, we bring you part two of our interview with Judge James Baker on the international laws and treaties that hold Russia accountable during this conflict. If you haven't already listened to part one, make sure to check it out. We bring you this episode just as President Biden embarks on his high-stakes trip to Europe, with new punishments and sanctions against Russia expected to come in the days ahead. For now, here's Elisa and Judge James Baker. Judge Baker, you know, Putin has his own rhetoric, as you know, and a lot of people are calling him COVID crazy, myself included. His demeanor has changed, his entire countenance his man, everything is off. Some people say he, they haven't seen him use one of his arms in a while. They think maybe he's sick. But let me tell you the, some of the harebrained, in my view, things that he has said that appear to me to invoke some of the terms of the treaties and articles and agreements that you have mentioned. So let's go over them. You talked about sanctions. Generally, I think there was one study done which suggested that the first meaningful impact of sanctions is rarely felt for 90 days into the conflict. But what I want to raise with you is Putin addressed this and said it amounted to a declaration of war. Is there anything that he could fall back on, anything that you are aware of that would allow him to make that claim and have it stick anywhere, sanctions being a declaration of war? Well, I don't even know where to begin to respond to someone like Putin discussing what is a legal term in U.S. constitutional law and some scholars have argued is a international legal principle. Gene Rostow, one of his views about the declaration of war power, which was that it was a mechanism to signal in international law when two states were in hostilities so as to alert neutral parties. If I were to assert that as the proper reading of the Commander-in-Chief Clause or the Declaration of War Clause, I would spend the rest of my professional career responding to letters from professors. But I don't think Putin is making an international law point in his role as professor. The only thing I'm being careful about, generally, we would not think that sanctions would rise to the level of armed attack or amount to the initiation of hostilities. And I don't believe that's the case at all here, to be very clear. Absolutely not. And in fact, it is a proper response under countermeasures and and various doctrines of state responsibility and so on, not amounting to hostilities. I'm just putting aside some hypothetical scenario where sanctions might, in some other context, not this one, warrant an additional look. But that's not what he's doing, obviously. He's a bully. And you brought up the topic of tables. We can talk about tables, by which I mean very long tables, because you're scared to be near your people. I'm not a Putin watcher. There are people who are doing that very well. But there's more than COVID fear that going on with those tables. It's both a power game and it may be a safety fear as well. I want to go back to one thing, though, quickly make it very clear. We started this discussion with the law of armed conflict, and there's been a lot of talk about war crimes. I think it would be helpful just to be clear here that people use the phrase war crime sort of generically to cover all crimes as well as specific war crimes. And just so our general audience not the legal specialist, but our general audience knows that while we use the term war crimes to describe a number of things, specialists identify four crimes arising in conflict. War of aggression, 
which at Nuremberg was referred to as the supreme international crime, right? One of the Nuremberg principles was to prohibit wars of aggression. In an invasion of another country without cause is clearly meets that category. That's the supreme international crime, in the words of the Nuremberg prosecutors. Crimes against humanity and crimes against humanity describe a widespread or systematic attack in violation of the law. So widespread or systematic attack on civilians, for example. Genocide is, of course, one as well. That's the deliberate killing on a large scale of a national, ethnic, religious, and certain other groups for the purpose of destroying that nation or group, right? That's genocide. And now we get to another category, which is war crimes. And war crimes are all the things we started this session with, the intentional targeting of civilians, the indiscriminate targeting of civilians, the improper use of weapons. These are war crimes, and you will find them listed in the Rome statute, the ICC statute, but where else will you find them? You'll find them in Title 18 of the United States Code, Section 2441. That's real law. It's U.S. criminal law, but that doesn't mean there's jurisdiction in this case, but these are real crimes. And so when we talk about war crimes, we're talking about that set of specific war crimes like torture, indiscriminate killing of civilians and so on, but also the other three crimes that are part of this kit of war crimes. Back to Putin. Why did I bring this up right now? Because you brought up Putin, which raises one of the fundamental principles of the law of armed conflict. There's five elements to command responsibility, and it's important to know what those five are in this context. Why? Because the Russian military is also responsible for what is going on, not just Putin, right? And, and so I want to, can I pause you for just two seconds? Yeah, I, 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 this is in a very important thing because the Putin watchers, the people who know him best, have pointed out that in the publicized meeting that he had during which time he basically announced he was going to do this, that the military leaders who they had watched for decades were visibly uncomfortable. One, it is reported, has since lost his own son during the conflict. Assuming for just a moment that these people are not comfortable with what he is doing, will they nevertheless find themselves responsible, legally um, speaking? Well, uh, it depends. So the doctrine of command responsibility posits that people are individually responsible for their actions, right? If I, as a commander, order a war crime, I am responsible. So that's individual responsibility. Commanders are also responsible for crimes that they had reason to know of and did nothing to stop. That's the Yamashita principle. If you are a commander and you see indiscriminate shelling of a city, you have reason to know that that's occurring and you have a duty to stop it. Commanders must take reasonable steps to prevent violations of the law of armed conflict. That's training your people, giving them rules of engagement. You can't just send them out. You have to take reasonable precautions and reasonable steps to make sure the law is followed. Can I pause you there on that score, on that precise point? We're going to hover over that for just a second, which is that it's been widely reported that most of these people fighting are nothing more than conscripts. What are conscripts? And assuming arguendo, if this reporting is true, that they've received virtually no training and were sent there with no understanding of what was about to occur, how would that apply? Well, the fact that the soldier in question is a conscript doesn't change the commander's responsibility to ensure that the law is followed. What it does change is 
one's calculus as to what is necessary to ensure that the law is followed, applying the doctrine of command responsibility. So a conscript is a draftee, and many professional armies have had draftees. So the the fact that someone is a conscript doesn't excuse them from violating the law of armed conflict. One of the issues here, as I understand it, is that conscripts, they're not just conscripts, but they're not receiving training before they're sent forward, or they're they're receiving just the minimum of training. And, And my guess is, I'm being entirely facetious here, that training is not including law of armed conflict, which is actually required under the law of armed conflict to be provided. Uh, I take that bet, sir. I would take that bet. I think you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's a small chance of that. But the fact that you're a conscript, that may change the calculus of what we expect of the conscript, but it doesn't change the calculus, the responsibility of the commander. It changes what we think the commander should do, which is more exercise of control. And I looked the other day, a couple of months ago, uh, I was trying to figure out whether there are judge advocates in the Russian military. And that's a challenge I present to you, which is if you can find me a judge advocate in the Russian military, and by that I mean someone who's actually doing the law of armed conflict, they have a prosecutorial general service, which is to no doubt enforce discipline. So if those conscripts seek to flee, they can be prosecuted for desertion and going AWOL, but they do not, as I can tell, and as we can see, have anybody who is responsible for upholding and advising on the law. That's the commander's responsibility in the end. So to pick up two more elements of command responsibility, generally people think, oh, this is a military responsibility, but the International Criminal Tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda have applied the doctrine to civilians as well, C.E.G. Milosevic who in 2002 was brought to The Hague for prosecution. So civilians can be held to account under the doctrine of command responsibility if they're exercising command or or should be. And then the fifth element is a duty to investigate and prosecute if appropriate. If there's an allegation, a credible allegation or an allegation of war crime, you have a duty to investigate it. And if it's credible, you have a duty to to prosecute. So why is there hesitation? Why might there be hesitation to call this stuff out at this time? And this is just me speaking. I should be very clear. I don't speak for my court. I don't speak for the United States government. I speak for Jamie Baker. So in the criminal law, including the law of armed conflict, of course, there needs to be an intent. But we know as well from the criminal law that in certain cases, we can presume intent where the actions in question are the natural and probable consequence of what you're doing. You can say, well, how would we ever prove intent that they intended to fire on civilians or they intended to fire indiscriminately into the city? And the answer is, well, we don't have to prove specific intent. We don't need a document stating that that's what they intended to do, the commander. We might infer that as a natural and probable consequence of firing artillery randomly into a city. That's the question of intent. Under command responsibility, though, we also need to know who, in fact, is the commander, right? So one of the problems here is we can talk about command responsibility, but if you don't know who's actually the battery commander, the battalion commander, the regimental commander, the division commander of the artillery units that are firing indiscriminately into the city, then saying there's a war crime is great, but you don't know who committed it under the doctrine of command responsibility. So if I were capturing Russian soldiers 
I would be building a record of what the chain of command looks like so that the Russian military knows that they are responsible for what is occurring. And it's not just Putin and oligarchs that may find it hard to travel in Europe in the future. It is also Russian military officers who are identified as implicated in what is going on. And then, of course, there's element of proof. This is a, a war, among other things, about the rule of law. So when we talk about war crimes, we should also talk about actually proving them and doing so with evidence. Here, I would note that the Ukrainian military actually had units that were trained in war crime forensics, although complicated cell phones in some way make everyone a war crime for forensics collector. That doesn't mean that's going to be good enough. But we want to make sure that when we talk about war crimes, we also talk about actually proving them and not uh, just asserting them. Clearly, it's ongoing. You don't need to be an expert in thermobaric weapons. You just need to look out and see that there's indiscriminate firing on civilians, and there may be intentional targeting of civilians. And that is a war crime. And, and that's without talking about specialized weapons, specialized rules, and complicated issues of proportionality, if there are such. So uh, there's a lot here. And uh, I, I rather suspect that evidence is being collected. And I, I also suspect, and I say this based on what's publicly reported exclusively, that there is a lot of internal dissent in Russia that we're not hearing about. And then there's some that is apparent. It's obvious um, when some of these things have been broadcast. But what is not helpful in any conflict is when somebody says something off the cuff. But that did happen here. And it was unfortunately by a senior United States Senator, Lindsey Graham, who decided to put forth in social media that he and say that he thought Putin should be assassinated. Now, I just want to back up in case, first of all, there are no quick fixes. And there are people around Putin who've been identified by experts who, as those who could immediately stand in his stead and who are basically of the same Velshenshone. So understanding that, let's talk for just a second about this suggestion of foreign assassinations. Now, Foreign assassinations and assassinations of political leaders are banned, but under executive order 11901. But there are other principles and other laws that say that this is a not a permissible action. Am I right? Yes. So we have a couple of layers of analysis here to go through. One is just to take care of it. Uh, we're referring to the so-called assassination prohibition. It's not so-called. It's there in Executive Order 12333 and dates back to President Ford, but was enshrined uh, most notably in Executive Order 12333 during the Reagan administration by President Reagan. The Executive Order, of course, applies to United States personnel and actors. And, you know, a presidential executive order is not applicable to necessarily to Russian actors. Um, one of the questions is, how is that defined? And the answer is, ask the president of the United States. It's in an executive order. And I will leave it there. In the context of a particular senator's comments and the response to his comments, I would make two comments and put Executive Order 12333 to the side here. One, in a context where the United States, the president has made it very clear that he's seeking to avoid escalation as between the United States and Russia, having a person who might be construed or perceived by actors in Russia or 
not perceived, but nonetheless played for propaganda reasons. It, it looks like a potential escalation. It looks like uh, one could say, well, that that looks like some form of hostility. Um, and if you're trying to de-escalate rather than escalate, it's not helpful to have senators walking around saying such things. I would further add, and this is an important point, in scholars, there's some debate on this, but I, don't, I, I think it's fairly clear, and I'd refer people to the DOD Law of War manual, which anyone in the audience can look up on the internet. Under the Law of Armed Conflict, under the Hague line of the article, treacherous killing is prohibited, and treacherous killing is thought to include assassination. We get into problems here with the law of armed conflict as well, potentially. And then why do I say potentially? Because someone will say, oh, but what about targeting a military leader as part of uh, the Yamamoto uh, shoot down? And there's a difference between a lawful military object and assassination. That has to do with whether you're doing something in a treacherous manner or not. So assassination is is thought of as like poisoning someone or doing something like that. So I think that's those were two of the reasons why there was such an immediate response, I believe. You mentioned the sole organ. I didn't I pushed back a little and the president's not the sole organ. That's a Justice Sutherland theory of law. But uh, it's certainly helpful if the United States speaks with one voice particularly when the opponent uh, appears not capable of exercising a sophisticated uh, view or a disciplined view. Um, so that's that's a problem as well. Why might you want to prohibit, either as a matter of policy, law, or legal policy, assassination? It's the same reason you might be worried about running around charging everybody with war crimes, although if they've committed them, they should be held to account. But you do want to have someone left to negotiate the end to hostilities. And you don't want to put everyone into the posture where it's total war because there's nothing to lose. So if every Russian officer were accused of war crimes, credibly accused of war crimes, and knew that there was no path forward other than through The Hague, uh, that might impact their willingness to both cease the illicit conduct and also end the conflict. So I think that or de defy defy orders, refuse to carry out oh, so uh, you're orders, raising, right? You want them you want them to have that option. Yeah, and 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 I think we've made it clear. I mean, what I'd like to make clear is because of command responsibility, there's there's an option here, which is to follow the law, to target in a discriminate manner and with proportionality. And one thing most people so some people linger in the past on this and some most people don't, but there's no such thing as a superior orders defense. In the United States military, this is a Nuremberg principle that following orders does not relieve you of war crime accountability. And in the United States military, the way that that is implemented, and if you would like, there's a uh, an article in Just Security that I did on this topic of superior orders. But, but the basic rule is that a U.S. military member has an obligation to follow lawful orders, right? That's good order and discipline. You can't have a professional military if you don't follow orders. However, you have an obligation not to follow an unlawful order if a reasonable person would know the order was unlawful. Because it's, it's, it's hard. This gets back to the conscript issue. If you're a young conscript, whether they would know a law, an order was unlawful or not, whether they would reasonably know that an order was unlawful or not, depends in part on training, depends in part on a number of things. But we can certainly agree, 
that any rational actor, any reasonable person would know that certain things were unlawful, inherently unlawful, like intentionally targeting civilians, intentionally targeting a hospital, unless, of course, the hospital was being used for military purpose. And there's no indication these two hospitals were being used for military purposes. Absolutely none. If you're a Russian commander, it is not a defense to commit war crimes to say that you were ordered to do so by your chain of command running up to Putin. That does not relieve you of the obligation not to follow the order if it's unlawful. Okay, well, we the next time we do this, we'll record it entirely in Russian and we'll disseminate it on Telegram. Does that work for you? Yeah, that works for me. Thank you. <laughs> Anything that might end the hostilities in a manner that preserves Ukraine's independence and the rule of law and protects civilians there is a good thing. If I have to go try and learn Russian uh, between now and our next podcast, I'll certainly give that a go because th- these are people who deserve their independence. I sense that they have a deep commitment to rule of law or a desire to develop a commitment to rule of law. And we certainly have seen inspiring leadership from the government of Ukraine uh, starting at the very top. Here, here. I would agree with that. Is there any last words here? Anything else that we should be thinking about as we look at this in terms of our laws, international law, military law, and potential legal consequences? I, I did hear what you said about Milosevic. And I would say that obviously Putin would, as a civilian, as you've described, have liability here to the ICC under the Rome Statute. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out? So the answer is yes. I have seven hours of additional material I'd like to share with you. That's great. That's terrific. Go ahead. (laughs) No, no. But so I'd like to, to share two things which really means 43. One of the issues we didn't talk about, and it it relates to what I want to conclude on, which is how do you enforce this stuff? In the United States military, it's enforced because the backbone of the military is leadership and good order and discipline. And good order and discipline falls back on the Uniform Code of Military Justice and obedience to orders, including the order to follow the law of armed conflict. But what do you do in a case like Russia? in the context of an invasion of Ukraine, how can that law be enforced? And it can lead to sort of cynicism about the law if you don't see a path forward to enforcement. And the next time we meet, because it's a complicated subject that doesn't lend itself to single bullets, there are venue options, but also venue issues. It is as complicated as saying it depends in part on which war crime you're talking about. The war of aggression, jurisdiction over the war of aggression at the ICC, for example, is treated differently than war crimes in terms of when and how you can assert jurisdiction, if at all. So it requires some readout. But here's what I'd like to note and conclude on. Some people who are observing this outrageous abuse, both in terms of the invasion as well as the manner in which Russia is conducting itself, might say, well, you talk about the law of armed conflict, but is there really a law of armed conflict when at least one party is not following it? Why should we care about the law? You know, there's the old phrase, everybody likes to quote Cicero, that the law falls falls silent in time of war. And it may feel that way to the civilian who's under, under indiscriminate bombing. The New Haven School of Law would identify what is operational law and what is aspirational law. I get that. But here's why we should care. The government of Ukraine should care about the law, why we should care about the law and continue to talk about it and uphold it. One, following the law of armed conflict is good for national security and it's good for military results. 
The difference between a mob with weapons and a professional military is leadership, training, and adherence to the law of armed conflict. The principle of discrimination and proportionality embodies the military principle of economy of force. You want to save the force you have for when you need it, not exhaust it gratuitously on targets that don't need to be attacked, and certainly on civilians. Following the law also supports the will to fight. If I'm a Ukrainian, I don't want to fight for a nation that is violating the law of armed conflict uh, and committing abuses. I want to fight for a nation that is committed to the rule of law. Uh, so it helps recruitment. It helps for public support. It also helps for allied support. It's very important to follow the law of armed conflict because, as we learned with Guantanamo Bay, when your allies do not feel that you are adhering to the law of armed conflict, they may not share information with you. They may decide they don't want to share as many weapons with you and so on. So it's an essential ingredient to sustaining allied support and coalition support. It also leads, for example, following the law, humane treatment of detainees, let's say Russian soldiers who have been captured, they're more likely to share with you information, information about who is responsible for what is occurring in information about where the next tank may come down the road or where, where the next attack may come. So I would say to people who are worried that without a foreseeable courtroom in which these things could be adjudicated, that does not mean the law doesn't matter. It means the law matters greatly, but like Milosevic, you may have to wait for your day in court, but your day in court may well come. But the law is still vital to security, still vital to who we are. And I would note here as well that the first modern expression of the law of armed conflict was the Lieber Code in 1863, which was adopted and signed by President Lincoln as General Order 100 in the middle of a civil war. You can have law in the most arduous of circumstances, and it's what distinguishes a professional military from a mob with weapons in an autocrat's military. All right. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to pull it. I know it did take a while to bring Milosevic to justice. I don't see a situation where Vladimir Putin would sort of disappear only to be discovered a decade later, posing as a shaman with long hair and selling health tonic. But there would be a, a certain delight in seeing him so deteriorated. I sincerely hope that this ends through the will of the Russian as well as the Ukrainian people. And I really appreciate you setting forth these principles in a time when retribution and anger is really guiding, I think, a lot of the discourse. It's important to remember that if we cleave to these fundamental principles, that the order of the world and civil society does ultimately prevail, as does the rule of law, which is better for peace and stability across the globe. Thanks for coming in. I know that I'm going to bother you again very soon because this is a fast-moving situation. I hope and pray that the next time we speak, there has been no use of nuclear weapons and that any further use of these really horrible weapons has been stopped by those persons within Russia who want to do the right thing here and who may at this moment be too afraid to speak up and take charge. And could I just say, it's a pleasure to be with you, but it's never a bother to talk about the rule of law and why it matters. So thank you for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. We're always happy to have you. you. You always give a great education to our audience, whether you're neophytes or seasoned attorneys in the area of national security law. 
Our guest tonight has been Judge James E. Baker, whose bio I have hyperlinked in the notes to our cast. It's an illustrious bio. I can only hope that some of you young national security lawyers will have the opportunity to serve in one or two of the positions that he has held. It's always a pleasure to have you. We hope that you'll come back soon. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 